0: Chapter 7 of High Adventure A Narrative of Air Fighting in France by James Norman Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com High Adventure A Narrative of Air Fighting in France by James Norman Hall. Chapter 7 Brought Down. The preceding chapters of this journal have been written to little purpose if it has not been made clear that Drew and I, like most pilots during the first weeks of service at the front, were worth little to the Allied cause. We were warned often enough that the road to efficiency in military aviation is a long and dangerous one. We were given much excellent advice by aviators who knew what they were talking about. Much of this we solicited, in fact, and then proceeded to disregard it, item by item eager to get results we plunged into our work with the valor of ignorance the result being that drew was shot down in one of his first encounters escaping with his life by one of those more than miracles for which there is no explanation that i did not fare as badly or worse is due solely to the indulgence of that godfather of ours already mentioned who watched over my first flights while in a mood beneficently pro-ally drew's adventure followed soon after our first patrol when he had the near combat with the two-seater. Luckily, on that occasion, both the German pilot and his machine-gunner were taken completely off their guard. Not only did he attack with the sun squarely in his face, but he went down in a long gradual dive, in full view of the gunner who could not have asked for a better target. But the man was asleep, and this gave J.B. a dangerous contempt for all gunners of enemy nationality. Lieutenant Talbot cautioned him, You have been lucky, but don't get it into your head that this sort of thing happens often. Now, I'm going to give you a standing order. You are not to attack again, neither of you, Are to think of attacking during your first month here. As likely as not, it would be your luck next time to meet an old pilot. If you did, I wouldn't give much for your chances. He would outmaneuver you in a minute. You will go out on patrol with the others, of course. It's the only way to learn to fight." but if you get lost, go back to our balloons and stay there, until it is time to go home. Neither of us obeyed this order, and, as it happened, Drew was the one to suffer. A group of American officers visited the squadron one afternoon, in courtesy to our guest. It was decided to send out all the pilots for an additional patrol to show them how the thing was done. Twelve machines were in readiness for the sortie, which was set for seven o'clock, the last one of the day. We were to meet at three thousand meters and then to divide forces one patrol to cover the east half of the sector and one the west we got away beautifully with the exception of drew who had motor trouble and who was five minutes late in starting with his permission i insert here his own account of the adventure a letter written while he was in hospital no doubt you were wondering what happened listening meanwhile to many i told you so explanations from the others this will be hard on you, but bear up, son. It might not be a bad plan to listen, with the understanding as well as to the ear, to some expert advice on how to bag the Hun. To quote the prophetic Miller, I am telling you this for your own good. I gave my name and the number of the Esquidel to the medical officer at the Poste de Secours. He said he would phone the captain at once, so that you must know before this that I have been amazingly lucky.' I fell the greater part of two miles, count them, two, before I actually regained control, only to lose it again. I fainted, while still several hundred feet from the ground, but more of this later. Couldn't sleep last night, had a fever, and my brain went on a spree, taking advantage of my helplessness. I just lay in bed and watched it function. Besides, there was a great artillery racket all night long. It appeared to be coming from our sector, so you must have heard it as well. This hospital is not very far back, and we get the full orchestral effect of heavy firing. The result is that I am dead tired today. I believe I can sleep for a week. They have given me a bed in the officer's ward—me, a corporal. It is because I am an American, of course. Wish there was some way of showing one's appreciation for so much kindness. My neighbor on the left is a Cheshire captain. A hand-grenade exploded in his face he will go through life horribly disfigured. An old padre with two machine-gun bullets in his hip is on the other side. He is very patient, but sometimes the pain is a little bit too much for him. To a Frenchman, "ouh la la is an expression for every conceivable kind of emotion. In the future, it will mean unbearable physical pain to me. Our orderlies are two Polois, long past military age. They are as gentle and thoughtful as the nurses themselves. One of them brought me lemonade all night long, worthwhile getting wounded, just to have something to taste so good. I meant to finish this letter a week ago, but haven't felt up to it. Quite perky this morning. So I'll go on with the tale of my heroic combat. Only first, tell me how that absurd account of it got into the Herald. I hope Talbot knows that I was not foolish enough to attack six Germans single-handed. If he doesn't, please enlighten him. His opinion of my common sense must be low enough as it is. We were to meet over S at 3,000 meters, you remember, and to cover the sector at 5,000 until dusk. I was late in getting away, and by the time I reached the rendezvous, you had all gone. There wasn't a chase machine in sight. I ought to have gone back to the balloons, as Talbot advised, but thought it would be easy to pick you up later. So went on alone after i had got some height, crossed the lines at 3,500 meters, and finally got up to 4,000, which was the best I could do with my rebuilt engine. The Huns started shelling, but there were only a few of them that barked. I went down the lines for a quarter of an hour, meeting two Sopworths and a leotard, but no Spods. You were almost certain to be higher than I, but my old packet was doing its best at 4,000 and getting overheated with the exertion had to throttle down in the peak several times to cool off then i saw you at least i thought it was you about four kilometers inside the german lines i counted six machines well grouped one a good deal higher than the others and one several hundred meters below them the pilot on top was doing beautiful reversements and an occasional barrel turn in barry's manner I was so certain it was our patrol that I started over at once to join you. It was getting dusk, and I lost sight of the machine lowest, down for a few seconds. Without my knowing it, he was approaching at exactly my altitude. You know how difficult it is to see a machine in that position. Suddenly he loomed up in front of me like an express train, as you have seen them approach from the depths of a moving-picture screen, only ten times faster, and he was firing as he came. I realized my awful mistake, of course. His tracer bullets were going by on the left side, but he corrected his aim, and my motor seemed to be eating them up. I banked to the right, and was about to cut my motor and dive, when I felt a smashing blow in the left shoulder, a sickening sensation, and a very peculiar one, not at all what I thought it might feel like to be hit with a bullet. I believed that it came from the German in front of me, but it couldn't have for he was still approaching when I was hit, and I have learned that the bullet entered from behind. This is the history of less than a minute I'm giving you. It seemed much longer than that, but I don't suppose it was. I tried to shut down the motor, but couldn't manage it, because my left arm was gone. I really believed that it had been blown off into space until I glanced down and saw that it was still there. But for any service it was to me, I might just as well have lost it there was a vacant period of ten to fifteen seconds which i can't fill in after that i knew that i was falling with my motor going full speed it was a helpless realization my brain refused to act i could do nothing finally i did have one clear thought am i on fire this cut right through the fog brought me up poirard awake i was falling almost vertically in a sort of half barrel. no machine but a spad could have stood the strain the Huns were following me and were not far away, judging by the sound of their guns. I fully expected to feel another bullet or two boring its way through. One did cut the skin of my right leg, although I didn't know this until I reached the hospital. Perhaps it was well that I did fall out of control, for the firing soon stopped, the Germans thinking, and with reason, that they had bagged me. Some proud boyish airman is wearing an iron cross on my account. Perhaps the whole crew of daredevils has been decorated however, no unseemly sarcasm. We would pounce on a lonely Hun just as quickly. There is no chivalry in war these modern days." I pulled out of the spin, got the broomstick between my knees, reached over and shut down the motor with my right hand. The propeller stopped dead. I didn't much care, being very drowsy and tired. The worst of it was that I couldn't get my breath. I was gasping as though I had been hit in the pit of the stomach. Then I lost control again, started falling. It was awful. I was almost ready to give up. I believe that I said out loud, I'm going to be killed. This is my last sortie. At any rate, I thought it. Made one last effort and came out in Le Gagne du vol, as nearly as I could judge, about 150 meters from the ground. It was an ugly-looking place for landing, trenches and shell-holes everywhere. I was wondering, in a vague way, whether they were French or German, when I fell into the most restful sleep I've ever had in my life. I have no recollection of the crash, not the slightest. I might have fallen as gently as a leaf. That is one thing to be thankful for among a good many others. When I came to, it was at once, completely. I knew that I was on a stretcher and remembered immediately exactly what had happened. My heart was going pit-a-pat, pat and I could hardly breathe but i had no sensation of pain except in my chest this made me think that i had broken every bone in my body i tried moving first one leg then the other then my arms my head my body no trouble at all except with my left arm and side i accepted the miracle without attempting to explain it for i had something more important to wonder about who had the handles of my stretcher the first thing i did was to open my eyes but I was bleeding from a scratch on the forehead and saw only a red blur. I wiped them dry with my sleeve and looked again. The broad back in front of me was covered with mud, impossible to distinguish the color of the tunic. But the shrapnel helmet above it was French. I was in French hands. If ever I live long enough in one place, so that I may gather a few possessions and make a home for myself, on one wall of my living room. I will have a bust-length portrait, rear view of a French branchadier, mud-covered back and battered tin hat. Do you remember our walk with Monart in the rain, and the dîner at the restaurant where they made such wonderful omelettes? I am sure that you will recall the occasion, although you may have forgotten the conversation. I have not forgotten one remark of Minalt's apropos of talk-about-risks. If a man were willing, he said, to stake everything for it, he would accumulate an experience of fifteen or twenty minutes, which would compensate him, a thousand times over, for all the hazard. And, if you live to be old, he said quaintly, you can never be bored with life. You will have something always very pleasant to think about. I mention this in connection with my discovery that I was not in German hands. I have had five minutes of perfect happiness. Without any background, no thought of yesterday or tomorrow to spoil it, I said, "Bonjour, monsieurs," in a gurgling voice. The man in front turned his head sideways and said, "Tiens, que monsieur, la aviator? The other one said, "Ah, mon voeux, you know the infection they give this expression, particularly when it means this is something wonderful." He added that they had seen the combat and my fall, and little expected to find the pilot living, to say nothing of speaking. I hoped that they would go on talking, but I was being carried along a trench. They had to lift me shoulder-high at every turn, and needed all their energy. The Germans were shelling the lines, several fell fairly close, and they brought me down a long flight of wooden steps into a dugout to wait until the worst of it should be over. While waiting, they told me that I had fallen just within the first-line trenches at a spot where a slight rise in ground hid me from the sight of the enemy. Otherwise, they might have had a bad time rescuing me. My spad was completely wrecked. It fell squarely into a trench, the wings breaking the force of the fall. Before reaching the ground, I turned, they said, and was making straight for Germany, fifty meters higher, and I would have come down in no man's land. For a long time we listened, in silence, to the subdued crump, crump of the shells. Sometimes showers of earth pattered down the stairway, and we would hear the high-pitched droning zzz of pieces of shell casing as they whizzed over the opening. One of them would say, "'Not far, that one,' or, "'He's looking for someone, that fellow,' in a voice without a hint of emotion." then long silences and other deep, earth-shaking rumbles. They asked me several times if I was suffering, and offered to go to the Poste socours if I wanted them to. It was not heavy bombardment, but it would be safer to wait for a little while. I told them that I was ready to go on at any time, but not to hurry on my account. I was quite comfortable. The light glimmering down the stairway faded out and we were in complete darkness my brain was amazingly clear it registered every trifling impression i wish it might always be so intensely awake and active there seemed to be four of us in the dugout the two brancardiers and the second self of mine as curious as an eavesdropper at a keyhole listening intently to everything and then turning to whisper to me The airs repeated the same comments after every explosion. I thought, they have been saying this to each other for over three years. It has become automatic. They will never be able to stop. I was feverish, perhaps. If it was fever, it burned away any illusions I may have had of modern warfare from the infantryman's viewpoint. I know that there is no glamour in it for them, that it has long since become a deadly monotony, an endless repetition of the same kinds of horror and suffering, a boredom more terrible than death itself, which is repeating itself in the same ways day after day and month after month. It isn't often that an aviator has the chance I have had. It would be a good thing if they were to send us into the trenches for twenty-four hours every few months. It would make us keener fighters, more eager to do our utmost to bring the war to an end for the sake of the Polus. The dressing station was in a very deep dugout, lighted by candles. At a table in the center of the room, the medical officer was working over a man with a terribly crushed leg. Several others were sitting or lying along the wall, awaiting their turn. They watched every movement he made in an apprehensive animal way, and so did I. They put me on the table next, although it was not my turn. I protested, but the doctor paid no attention. Aviator American again? it's a pity that frenchmen can't treat us americans as though we belong here as soon as the doctor had finished with me my stretcher was fastened to a two-wheeled carrier and we started down a cobbled road to the ambulance station i was light-headed and don't remember much of that part of the journey had to take refuge in another dugout when the huns dropped a shell on an ammunition dump in the village through which we were to pass there was a deafening banging and booming for a long time And when we did go through the town, it was on the run. The whole place was in flames and small-arms ammunition still exploding. I remember seeing a long column of soldiers going at the double in the opposite direction, and they were in full marching order. Well, this is the end of the tale, all of it, at any rate, in which you would be interested. It was one o'clock in the morning before I got between cool, clean sheets, and I was wounded about a quarter past eight. I have been tired ever since there is another aviator here a frenchman who broke his jaw and both legs in a fall while returning from a night bombardment his is across the aisle from mine he has a formidable-looking apparatus fastened on his head and under his chin to hold his jaw firm until the bones knit he is forbidden to talk but breaks the rule whenever the nurse leaves the ward he speaks a little english and has told me a delightful story about the origin of aerial combat A French pilot, a friend of his, he says, attached to a certain army group during August and September 1914, often met a German aviator during his reconnaissance patrols. In those Arcadian days, fighting in the air was a development for the future, and these two pilots exchanged greetings, not cordially, perhaps, but courteously, a wave of the hand as much as to say, "'We are enemies, but we need not forget civilities.' Then they both went about their work of spotting batteries, watching for movements of troops, etc. One morning the German failed to return the salute. The Frenchman thought little of this, and greeted him in the customary manner at their next meeting. To his surprise, the Bosch shook his fist at him in the most blustering and catish way. There was no mistaking the insult. They had passed not fifty meters from each other, and the Frenchman distinctly saw the closed fist. He was saddened by the incident, for he had hoped that some of the ancient courtesies of war would survive in the aerial branch of the service at least it angered him too therefore on his next reconnaissance he ignored the german evidently the bosch air squadrons were being prussianized the enemy pilot approached very closely and threw a missile at him he could not be sure what it was as the object went wide of the mark but he was so incensed that he made a virage and drawing a small flask from his pocket hurled it at his boorish antagonist the flask contained some excellent port he said but he was repaid for the loss in seeing it crash on the exhaust pipe of the enemy machine this marked the end of courtesy and the beginning of active hostilities in the air they were soon shooting at each other with rifles automatic pistols and at last with machine guns later developments we know about The night bombardier has been telling me this yarn in serial form. When the nurse is present, he illustrates the last chapter by means of gestures. I am ready to believe everything but the incident about the port. That doesn't sound plausible. A Frenchman would have thrown his watch before making such a sacrifice. End of chapter 7